We are in the book of Genesis, and for those of you who are new to Revolution Church, we like to study books of the Bible at a time, and we like to study it and preach it the way it's written, verse by verse, and I think that's the way God has designed it. Our scripture reader this morning is Alain Noel, so Alain, would you come on up here? You're probably best to use this step to the right, unless you're feeling really athletic and you want to get a running start. <laughs> there we go. Good job. And um, this microphone right here, it'll be on the screen straight back there. And I do want to uh, caution parents, um, the chapter we're covering this morning, kind of some touchy material. And so it'll make me feel awkward, at least probably you, maybe even more so. So uh, if your kids don't normally go to the children's service, this might be a good Sunday to do so. Uh, Alan, how are you? Good. It is good to have you this morning. Hold that microphone nice and close and read God's word for us this morning. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her... That's right. Um, he took her and went in to her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with the veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock, and she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. 
He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the court prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no court prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no court prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for reading for us. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult passage. It's, it makes us feel uncomfortable, but that's what you designed it to do. We are to be, feel very uncomfortable about sin. We are not to tolerate it. Lord, there are heroes in the Bible, but there's also very many sinners in the Bible. And uh, we, we, all the heroes, as flawed as they all are, they all point to Jesus Christ, who is the main point of the Bible. He is the big and only true hero of God's Word. So Lord, help us to see Christ in this passage this morning, as difficult and as awkward as it may be. Help us to learn from it so we can be more like Christ and less like the world. Lord, forgive us of our sins that blind us. May you forgive them so we can have our eyes opened up so we may behold Christ in his word and, and be able to love and appreciate and adore a truly holy God who dwells among sinful people. Amen. God gives us many great gifts, doesn't he? And one of the great gifts is the sexual union between a husband and a wife. And you've seen it at Christmas time where you give a gift to a toddler and what do they play with? The box, <laughs> you know. In fact, they may, they may totally destroy the actual gift itself. And I kind of think we're toddlers. God gives us amazing gifts and he gives us the gift of sexual pleasure, not just to procreate, but to enjoy and to become close and at one, and as the Bible calls it, one flesh. And what do we do? We throw the gift away and we play with the box, the mere shell of what God has given us. And we, we totally turn things upside down. 
And that's what this chapter is trying to teach us. Genesis chapter 38. We're going to divide it up into five sections. First of all, we see Judah entering into an unequally yoked relationship. And then we see unrighteous husbands in his sons. And then we see this undercover revenge that Tamar will be involved in. And then unbelievable hypocrisy on Judah's part. And then finally, the unusual childbirth with the twins at the end. So let's start with this unequally yoked. It says it happened at that time. Well, who remembers what happened last week that is this time it's talking about? Joseph was treated harshly by his brothers. They threw him in a dry cistern or a dry well and how difficult that was. And then he's pulled out and sold into slavery. It's happening at that time. The contrast here is intentional. Joseph is a great picture of Jesus Christ. He's persecuted by his brothers. He's mistreated. He's the father's favorite son. And Judah is the antitype. Judah is the fourth son of Leah, who's the disfavored wife. He's not doing very many good things. And so you're seeing a contrast between one guy suffering because of his righteousness and Judah suffering because of his wickedness. And so that's the contrast that's happening at this time that put it in context. So he's the fourth born of Leah, as I said, and he's the one, if you remember in the previous chapter, he's the one to, hey, we won't make any money if we kill him. Why don't we sell him? Good guy there. Way to be a great big, big brother there, Judah. And so at that time, and it says a certain Dolomite whose name was Hira. Okay? So he leaves his brothers, which is a picture of walking away from the people of God, and he befriends a guy who is a pagan, who is amongst the Canaanite people. The Dolomites were a tribe within the Canaanite people, and that's where he's going for friendship. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman. As you see this over and over in the Bible, whether it's Samson or Eve looking at the fruit, they see something and their flesh wants it. The Bible says we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. You can't go by all that your eyes are taking in. And if you choose a spouse simply based on their appearance, there's a word of caution there. Now, if your husband or wife happens to be attractive, great. Icing on the cake, okay? But what you should be looking for, single people, teenagers, young adults, older adults, anybody who's single, you should be looking here. You should be looking at the heart. And do they have a heart for Christ? Do they have a heart for God's Word? Do they love people? Character matters. And yet so much in our hookup culture of our world, where everything is about Tinder and people's pictures and all that stuff like that, we are so much obsessed with outward appearance. And I wish I had a dollar for every person who was good-looking but not good at heart. I'm not saying they're mutually exclusive. I'm married to someone who's good-looking and good at heart. Bonus there. Some of you are too, okay? I wish she could say the opposite. This day was true for her. But we, we need to get our eyes off the way people appear and the way that God sees them. And he's making a, a choice based on just what he saw. Not only is she attractive, evidently, but she's a Canaanite. These are the people who burn their own children alive as a sacrifice to God's. These are the people who abused women and, and, and children in a sexual and other ways. They were extremely, extremely wicked people. And this is where he goes to get a wife. And 
It doesn't even say her name because to Judah it doesn't matter. She's just a body. And in spite of her beliefs and her culture, and he wants to marry her. And like I said, the Bible doesn't even mention her name, which is making a statement in itself. And it says he took her, which some people, I, I heard, I was reading one commentary, like he like seized her, like kidnapped her. That's not what it's talking about at all. This is like when in your wedding vows, you say, I take you to be my lawful wedded husband. It's that kind of taking. So it's nothing wrong there in that sense. This wasn't a kidnapping. This was, this was mutual. Excuse me. Um, and he went into her. And of course, that's metaphorically and literally. Judah starts off with developing a close friendship with an unbeliever, and then he marries an unbeliever. You see the, 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 the digression that's happening here. Someone once said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Who are you hanging out with? Who do you spend weekends with? Who do you spend your free time with? And this, I'm talking to everybody from 14 to 64. Your friends determine your future. You are the sum of the five closest people around you. You're the average of them, as someone else said. You need to be careful who you hang out with. You need to be careful, more importantly, who you become close to. Are you with the party crowd? Are you with the, the people who don't treat their wives well? Are you with the people with foul mouths and things like that? I'm not saying don't be nice to those people. I'm just saying be really careful who you become super close to. I'm not telling you don't hang out with them. The Bible clearly says Jesus was the friend of who? Sinners, okay? And I'm going to explain the difference between friends and companions. But let me tell you, you are determining your future, even right now, by who you hang out with. 2 Corinthians says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that yoke means being tight to somebody. You know, oxen, when they plow a field, they put a yoke of wood over both of them so that they'll stay together, work together, and they'll work closely together, stride for stride, step by step, getting the work done. That's talking about a tight relationship. Again, I'm not saying don't be friends with lost people or people who are not godly. I want you to love them. I want you to care about them. But who do you choose to be best buds with? Who is your BFF? And even more importantly, who is your spouse? That should be a godly person. It goes on to say, for what partnership? has righteousness with lawlessness? The answer is none. What fellowship does light have with darkness? The answer is it doesn't. Paul goes on to say, what accord or like mutual contract does Christ have with Belial? Belial was a pagan god. And what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Again, you're not even, the portion talking about your inheritance, our inheritance is heaven. Their inheritance, if they don't come to Christ, is hell. You're not even going in the same directions eternally. Why would you be going in the same direction in this life? And so someone again could ask, wasn't Jesus the friend of sinners? Yes, he, he was. There's a balance here. But there are basically two types of friends. There are close friends, or what the Bible calls companions. And then there's marginal friends, people who are on the peripheral. You have your core. Remember, Jesus had his three closest. Who was that? Peter, James, and John, right? And, that was, and John was his closest but he was also the friend of sinners, but the sinners weren't on his court. They, weren't on, they were the marginal friends. Proverbs 13.20 gives us a little perspective on this balance. Whoever walks, and walks means you walk with someone, you're in yoke with someone, you're close to someone, you live your life with them. You walk with the wise, will become what? Talk to me this morning. They'll become what? Wise. But a companion, someone who makes his closest friends fools, what will happen? Suffer harm. People 
often talk to me in counseling. Well, I don't understand why my friends did this to me. My friends did that to me. My husband did this to me. I'm like, you're choosing these people. You're choosing these people who you know live foolish lifestyles, and then you wonder why they hurt you. We need to be careful who our closest companions are. And then it says she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. That's a great name. And then uh, she conceived again, and she has subsequent sons, Onan and Shelah. I'd hate to name a kid Sheila. That'd be horrible, wouldn't it? I'm going to pronounce it Shelah because it sounds a little more masculine. I don't know. Even then, the kids suffered harm, harm here by name this way. Um, Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. Now, the Bible throws in this little minor detail. like He was out of town when he was born. Everything in the Bible is there for a purpose. What would you do with that statement? She's having a third kid, and where is Judah? He runs his own business. He writes his own schedule. He chose, when it was close to birth time, to be out of town. You can tell what kind of dad Judah is already by this. So then we go to the unrighteous husbands that these sons became. So Judah took a wife for his firstborn. So he went and found the son, uh, found the wife for his oldest son, which is not unusual in that culture, okay? But he's the one doing it. And you, when you contrast Abraham's effort to find a wife for wife, Rebecca for Isaac, think about that. Abraham said, My son Isaac needs a wife but I'm not leaving the promised land, and he's not either. We are so connected with the promised land. We want to be right in the center of God's will. We're not even going to take a chance that we might leave and be distracted. Remember what happened to Jacob when he left to find a wife? He got stuck there for decades, okay? And so Abraham's like, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay here, and I'm going to send Eliezer, my servant, to go find a wife. And Eliezer goes out there, and he prays that God would help him and give him wisdom. He says, you know what? I want to find my, my master's son, a woman with a servant's heart. So Lord, I pray that you'd help me whenever, whoever, whatever woman offers to water these camels would be the one. And of course, she waters them, which was an all-day project. And you could see they were looking for God to guide them to the right wife. Do you see this with Judah? Nope, he went and took a wife. For himself, then he goes and just takes a wife. You see no prayer. You don't see some great story of looking for character. And Judah's efforts right here are just exactly the opposite. Parents, you need to be involved. And kids, you need to let your parents be involved in the choosing of a spouse. I know that there's many people who wish their parents had just spoken up and said, hey, this is not a good situation. Now, parents, don't be the other extreme to where you're controlling everything. And looking for the perfect spouse because they don't exist, amen? And so, but there needs to be some, a balance there. I, I have siblings who married when they shouldn't, and my mom and dad didn't approve. My mom and dad were like, we're not going to say anything, it's not our business. I'm like, it is your business. Please step up and say something. And I know my siblings say, I wish my parents had, had been involved. I wish my parents had said something. So Judah took a wife for Ur's firstborn, and her name was Tamar, which is still a very common name in the Middle East. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us what his sin was, but evidently the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. And I think the Bible purposely doesn't tell us. Because if he had named it, we'd be like, okay, well, I didn't, I'm not doing that. I'm okay. Because the wickedness wasn't the sight of the people. It wasn't like all the village thought this kid was a bad dude. Whose eyes was he considered wicked in? The Lord's eyes. 
Can I tell you that that's all that matters this morning? Your parents might think you're great. Your spouse might think you're great. Your boss might think you're great. But if in God's eyes you're committing wickedness, that's the only opinion that matters. And conversely, if everybody else thinks you're a jerk, and everybody else thinks that you're just way out, and you just love Jesus too much, but God loves you and says, keep it up, that's the only eyes that matter. That's the only opinion that matters. So we don't know what a sin was, but it was so severe that God said, you know what? Your, life, your time is done. And you see that all throughout the Bible. And God does it when he wants to do it. It's not as consistent as we might think it should be, because there's a lot of wicked people who live to 96, okay? And there's a lot of really good people who die in their 30s or even younger. But God does have a purpose and a reason for when he does that. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. In the New Testament, everybody was making great sacrifices because men were being killed for becoming Christians and leaving behind widows and orphans. So the church stepped up because there was no government to take care of. The Roman government for sure was not going to take care of them. So they were selling property. They were selling livestock. They were doing all kinds of things to raise money to help the widows. And Ananias and Sapphira sold a few acres. And they brought in the offering. But they thought, you know what? Let's keep some of this and let's give this much. And that was their right. Peter said so much. But they went in and said, here's all the money for the sale of the land. And the Holy Spirit told Peter, that's not the truth. And the Holy Spirit says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And a couple of verses later, by the way, he says, why have you lied to God? Which tells us that, that the Holy Spirit is God, right? He said, he said, wasn't the property and the money yours while it was in your hands to do what you want? You could have just said, hey, yeah, we sold it for you know, $50,000, we're keeping twenty-five, and here's twenty-five. That's great, fantastic, that's very generous of you. But they lied about how much they were given, so they looked more generous than they were, and God struck them down right there on the spot. Kind of crazy, huh? And then in the book of Revelation, he talks about people who, if they don't repent, he will come and put out their candlestick. Like he'll blow them out like you blow out a candle. Be careful, all of us, that to realize that you can walk only so many years in rebellion, you may think, well, I'll just come back to God whenever I want to. It may not be your choice. God may choose to bring you home way before you thought it was possible. So then Judah said to Onan, so go into your brother's wife and perform the duty. Now the duty, it was in this culture, and this, this was pre-Bible. The Code of Hammurabi and other Babylonian civilizations did this, and it was a way of taking care of widows. Okay? There was no social security system. So what would happen is a brother-in-law if, if his sister-in-law didn't have kids and his brother died before they could have kids, he would go in and cause her to conceive so she could at least have a child who would grow up and take care of her when she got old. Because that's the only way you were taken care of. Otherwise, you were on the street begging and usually would die of starvation or, some, or be abused or something like that. So to have children to take care of you in your old age, that was the way they did it. So, so Onan's told to go do this to raise up um, an offspring, and that was the way they protected widows. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Who is Onan thinking about? Me, myself, and I. Like so many other Bible characters, just being selfish. And so he, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. This is just totally wicked because what he's doing is he's getting all the pleasure of a sexual relationship without performing the duty of producing children. And so he's abusing her, he's misusing her. 
You know, in the 40s and 50s, many men were becoming sexual pigs, just to put it bluntly, and it created a double standard. They expected to marry a virgin, but they went and had several partners before they got married, and that is absolutely wrong. But the response to this was, was worse. Um, let's see here. In the 60s and 70s, instead of demanding that men stop being pigs, first wave feminism said, women have the right to be pigs too. That's who it was. And so there was a big push for birth control and abortion so that women could be just as promiscuous as men and not have to pay the price of being weighed down with a child. And both are wrong. Men should not be pigs. Women should not be pigs. We should act like the human beings that God created us to be. We should save ourselves for that one special person that God has given us to be one man for one woman for one lifetime. That's what Jesus said that Adam and Eve were created to be. People say, well, Jesus doesn't have an opinion about all this immorality. Yes, he does. He says, have you not seen from the beginning God created one man for one woman? And so that's the way God intended us to be, to share that intimacy, that incredible gift that God has given us with that one person for a lifetime. Isn't it interesting that we can enjoy that sexual pleasure years beyond the ability to bear children? So it, it tells us that God made it. The primary reason was to produce children, but the secondary benefit is amazing and meant to last for a lifetime. So let's, instead of just saying, let's all live like pigs and be a promiscuous, why don't we reel it back in and go back to God's plan? And that is to be dedicated to one person for a lifetime. Do y'all remember the, the movie star, Burt Reynolds? He was in lots of movies and he was known for being pretty promiscuous. And he was on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So I'm really dating myself here, right? And so how many remember Johnny Carson? Okay, so the Tonight Show. Anyway, who is the current host of the Tonight Show now? I don't watch it. Fallon? Jimmy Fallon. Fallon. Okay, so this is the guy before Jimmy Fallon. Anyway, Johnny Carson went and was talking about how wonderful it must be to be Burt Reynolds and just to have any woman you want. And Burt Reynolds said, you know what? I'm in more, he said, instead of being impressed with how many women one man can please, I'm more impressed with one man who can please one woman for a lifetime. Like, wow, what a, what a powerful statement. I think that's, there's a lot of truth in that. You see, God created us with basic human needs. We have the need for shelter. He doesn't want us to be rained on. He wants us to freeze or be struck by lightning. God gave us houses. Okay? But what happens when you take the, the primary need of shelter is protection. What's the secondary benefit of shelter? A nice house, the perfect tile, a really nice kitchen, an extra refrigerator in the garage, I mean, a, a man cave, or if you're into all that stuff, and we make our houses, we make our shelters very nice. What happens when we put the primary need of shelter, that's protection and a place to, for our family to be, secondary to the pleasure of a house? Then we have these houses that are just way off the charts, more of the house than anybody can live in, and we spend millions on houses when people around the world don't even have a, a lean-to or a shanty to live in. And you see it gets way out of distortion when we put the pleasure of a house in front of the protection of a house. What about clothing? God gave us clothing so that we could... He, the first set of clothes were made by God for Adam and Eve. They were skins, right? The picture of the sacrifice. What, what was clothing for? For modesty and again for protection. To protect our bodies from being hurt, from being too cold, too hot, all those things like that. And, but yet at the same time, we can enjoy clothing. We, we can... We can look nice. We can choose to be fashionable or not. Um, 
we can have our wives pick out the shirts for us if we want to look really good, right, guys? And so, but what happens when we put the pleasure of clothing above the primary purpose of clothing? Then we have $700 shoes and $12,000 dresses when people around the world came and afford another pair of sandals. And it gets way out of distortion. What about food? Man, aren't you glad that God made food taste good? Think about it. We have way more taste buds than animals do. Cows eat grass. The next day they eat grass. The next day they eat grass. And every now and then they might get some hay or some, um, what's the other thing called? They grow out in the other field. Somebody help me out here. Alfalfa, thank you, you know. But they don't even have near the taste buds that we have to enjoy it. They just eat to survive. We enjoy food. So food brings pleasure. But what's the primary purpose of food? Nutrition and survival. What happens when we take the pleasure of food and put it over top of the, ne- the nutrition of food? Then we have heart disease, diabetes, and on and on and on. And things that we, it hurts our health. The same is true with sex. What is the primary purpose of sex? To make children. But God gave us this duty of producing children and being fruitful and multiplying and made it very pleasurable. But what happens when we put the pleasure over top of the product? We have the pleasures more important than the children. And so therefore, it's like have sex with whoever, whenever, doesn't matter. Get pregnant, kill the child. Prevent the child. So think about it. A young couple who has waited to be married to one another and, and, and God has led them to each other and they get married and they have a service that honors God and they commit to love one another just like Christ loved the church and they live in that thing and they find out the test strip says positive. What's the reaction? Yay! We're going to have a baby! Take the other couple over here who hardly know each other but they're in it for the pleasure and then a couple days later, she gets the test positive. What's the reaction? Oh, man. A baby's beautiful. A baby is a miracle. And we're taking the miracle, the beautiful, one of the most beautiful things God has ever made that we get to enjoy, and we're like, oh, I don't need this thing. And just like Hitler talked, to the, talked about Jews as they're less than human, today we're saying, It's not really human. It's not a person. What does the Bible say about that? John the Baptist, from conception. Hezekiah, from conception. God spoke to them. David said, you have formed me in my mother's womb. You saw me when I was conceived. You saw me. you You saw me, a blob of tissue. No, you saw me, a person. Over and over and over again in the Bible. You see Jesus his mother Mary meeting Elizabeth and the two babies knowing that each other's there, leaping in the womb, that they're excited that they're both there. Blobs of tissue don't do that. We've taken the blessing of the sexual union and made it a curse. And we treat it like we've turned it everything upside down when we abuse God's system. Malachi 2 says this, didn't God create you to become like one person with your wife? And why did he do this? Why did he say that that oneness, that sexual union? It was so that you could have children and then lead them to become God's people. The primary purpose of marriage is to produce godly children, to raise up a generation. Have you noticed that the, the farther a civilization gets away from God, the population goes down? 
Because children, like children, what do you want to eat children? Why would we have children? And God says, hey, have children, have a bunch. And you see, if you have a lot of kids, and if you have two kids, people are like, oh, that's cool, you got to stop now. But if you have four or five, oh my gosh, God forbid you have six, seven. What are you, a cult member? What's wrong with you? You're a Mormon? What's wrong with you? It's like, if the Bible says children are a blessing from the Lord, and blessed is the man who has his quiver full. What's a quiver? It's a thing that holds arrows. If you go in the battle, man, how many arrows do you want? Just one or two? No. You want a bunch of them, right? So you, you, the Bible portrays children as a blessing. And yet this culture, and the, every, just study civilizations, we're at the point where populations are going backwards, except for like 3% of the nations around the world where population is actually going up. What if we began with what is in the best interest of the child? Think about that. Let's say I'm 20 years old. I'm interested in having sex with a woman. But I think, wait a minute. What if we do that and we have a baby? Well, if I'm thinking what's best for the child, which is what we should do, right? Didn't Jesus say, if you harm one of these, you'd be better off having a millstone tied around your neck, dude. Because if I get a hold of you and you harm one of these children, you're going to be in a severe pain. That's what Jesus talked about. He talked really hard about mistreating children, okay? So what if I say, well, you know, I don't want to harm those children because I know what Jesus will do to me. So if we have sex and she gets pregnant, then we have either we're going to have to raise this kid and co-parent and not have two parents in the home, and we know the statistics for that are really bad for the kids, or we're going to have to abort this child. You know what? I think it's in the best interest of the child that I just wait until I'm ready to marry this girl. What if we did that? What if we promoted a culture that always thought about the best interest of the child? So instead of exposing them to drag queens, we expose them to the king of kings. Instead of an abortion, we put a Bible in their hands. What if we had, you know that the leading number of adoptions around this country are by Christians. In fact, the leading adoption agencies in our country are founded by the Catholic Church and the evangelical churches because Christians believe so strongly in adoption. And, and the pushback was when Roe versus Wade got overturned, we're like, oh, are you Christians going to adopt the babies? And we were like, yeah, we've already been doing it for decades. And people, did you know there's over 11,000 pregnancy help centers all across the United States? 11,000 that will help you have your baby adopted instead of aborted. I've told moms, if you give birth to that child, we'll take it. Tammy and I have five adopted children. We will take, you, even in our late, as old as we are, if there was a mom who said, I'm thinking about having an abortion, at 59, I would say, give it to me. I will take it. I will do my best. I don't care about playing golf or going fishing. If I can raise a child and save its life, let's do it. And that's why there's so many adopted children in Revolution Church. Because we, we love children. We, we don't think, what's, what is best for the child? That's what our country needs to be thinking about. What is best for children? Not what's best for our sexual pleasure so that we can do whatever we want to do. That rabbit was worth chasing. <laughs> Verse 10, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. God says, you know, it wasn't just you did that and didn't get her pregnant. You had an obligation, you had a duty, and what you went in is you got all the pleasure without any of the responsibility. That's what's wrong in our culture. We want all the pleasure and no responsibility. With pleasure comes responsibility. And so all... There's so many young couples in our church, and man, it's good to hear babies crying, right? There's two things you always want to hear in church, babies crying and men singing. And it's good to hear babies crying. It doesn't bother me at all. Because what that says is, we love children. 
And when you have a man and a wife who are saying, you know what, honey, it's just you for the rest of my life. And you and me are going to do the best job we can to raise these kids to love Jesus. That's amazing. And that's totally opposite of what the world wants from this. That's why what he did was so wicked. Because he wanted all the pleasure with none of the responsibilities. And it was also in the sight of the Lord. The culture didn't care. He was living in a, amongst Canaanites who were sacrificing children, sacrificing babies. And so God put him to death also. Now, the previous brother, we don't know what his sin was, but this one, we know what his sin was. So he died. So now Tamar's lost her husband. Then a brother-in-law comes in to try to help have a baby. He dies. <laughs> okay, so it's like she's becoming the black widow here. And so Judah's being superstitious. Thinking, well, man, if I give her my youngest son, maybe he'll die too. Then Judah said to Tamar, I mean, this is evil. This is his daughter-in-law. He should be loving her like a daughter. I want you to just remain a widow and go to your father's house. Why not your house, Judah? She was married to your son. They were living in your house. He's basically is kicking, kicking her out when his obligation should have been to take care of her and say, go back to your father. And then my, tell my youngest son, Shalah, whatever you want to call him, we'll call him Sheila, I don't know. And when he grows up, okay, and then he'll be able to do this. But he had no intention of keeping this promise. This soap opera just gets worse. For he feared that his son would die like the others. He thinks, oh, this lady's cursed. See, whose fault is it in, in Judah's eyes? It's her fault. She keeps killing off these guys. He has no clue that his sons are wicked and that God's the one. He doesn't even see God at work in this picture at all. He doesn't even see their wickedness at all. He sees this innocent woman who's being abused by men, which is a major, God takes very seriously as a horrible sin. And he says, oh, you go live somewhere else. It's a, Judah's a loser on many levels. There's a chiastic structure here. And again, I, I'm going to read it to you. But I, I just want you to see the structure. You may not be able to see the words, I'm sure. This passage here, 1 through 12, starts with uh, the Adulamite. His name is Hira. But then it ends with Hira, the friend, who's an Adulamite. See how it flipped there? First it's like, wait, wait, this guy's a pagan and his name is Hira. It's like, oh no, no, this Hira, he's my friend. And yeah, he happens to be an Adullamite. You see the creep there? And then it goes on to say, um, then Judah, and he took a wife of the Canaanites, named, and her, it was the daughter of Shua, and then later in the passage she dies. And you know what's interesting about, well, let me just keep going. And then Judah took a wife for his son, her name was Tamar, and then he brings two to, to Tamar into the house, and then as the story is going away, he sends her out of the house after she's widowed. And then it talks about one son doing a wicked act, and God kills him, and another son doing a wicked act, and God killed him. Okay, see how the parallels are in, are in this chiastic sandwich here? And then Judah says, go into your, and perform the wife so he could do offspring, and he says the same thing, but at the very core, which tells us what the meaning of this story is, it says, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Onan's like, well, what's in it for me? Nothing's in it for me. I won't be able to have this son as an employee of mine. I won't be able to make any money from him. My inheritance amongst the brothers is going to be divided again. He's thinking about the money. And selfishness is at the core of every bad story like this. That's what God said. Hey, if you want to know what's the core of the story, it's one man's selfishness who's like, well, if it's not for me, then I'm the, I don't want to be a part of it. What is on the line here is the godly line to the Messiah. Remember, 
Seth, the godly line. Cain killed Abel, which would have been the godly line. So God raised up another son. His plan with Seth. And then you see a connection all the way down. And then it goes down to where God wipes out the whole earth, except for Noah and his sons. But then through that continues the godly line. And so the Messiah is at work here. And Satan's like, if my only hope is if I can kill or stop those who are in the godly line. And so from Satan's perspective right now, how's he doing? Took care of Ur, took care of Onan. Now, if I can just get it to where that nobody messes with this woman who the godly line is supposed to come through, this abused woman, I'm going to exalt her. I'm going to bring a Messiah from her subsequently down the line. Satan's thinking, I've got this. Salvation to the planet. I can mess up the whole plan right here because it all depends on literally on one person. Tamar plans uh, an undercover revenge. Again, God does not condone this activity. She's taking revenge in her own hands. But God is, what is the Bible all about? God using sinful people to still accomplish his plans. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Again, she's not, her name is never mentioned because it didn't matter to Judah. And when Judah was comforted, which means when he was done with his mourning period, Different cultures had 30 days, 60 days, whatever number of months, and then you weren't supposed to do anything but wear black and sackcloth and ashes and all that stuff. Whenever his period of mourning was done, he went up to Timnah to the sheep shears. Now, sheep shearing was a big deal. It was kind of like harvest, but on the, ag- on, the, on the livestock side. It was a big party. Everybody did it. You made lots of money. This is what you've been raising these animals for all year and feeding them, taking care of them, because you're going to make a lot of money off the, the, the wool that's going to be taken off of them as you shear the sheep. And he and his, now this guy is no longer just the Adullamite. He's the friend, Ira, the Adullamite. Notice the reversal. He's getting closer to this guy. And when Tamar was told, hey, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. Oh, so my father-in-law, who has an obligation to me to provide me some children so I don't just become a dead widow in the streets, he's off partying because that's what it was. It was party time for those people. And so she's like, oh, okay. And, and so... Sheila, she told, he told me he's not old enough to come into me and to marry me, but he's in charge of the ranch while dad's gone? I, I think he's old enough. This is becoming obvious. He has no intentions of ever giving me another husband, which is his responsibility. So she took off her widow's garment. She's in the midst of mourning herself, okay? Notice that Judah's widow mourning time was completed. She doesn't even get to complete her mourning time. She's still grieving a dead husband. Okay, she took off her widow's garments and she covered herself with a veil. And you think, of why, why in that culture is the veil the picture of, of a prostitute? Well, think about that. We don't do it as much today, but what did brides used to wear at their wedding? A veil. And what followed a wedding? A honeymoon. So these prostitutes, and this, the Bible tells us it was a cult prostitutes. In other words, the temple that worshipped these pagan gods that they sacrificed their babies to, Part of your religious ritual is to go in and mess with the prostitute. It's really wicked. Uh, we're not too far away in America. But these women would take to the streets with the veil on. So basically say, hey, I'm ready for a honeymoon. I just need a guy. And that was a way of saying they were available. And she wrapped herself in a, in a certain clothing that identified her as that cult prostitute. And she would go to the busy place to where men would be passing through. And she picked a spot on the way to Timnah so she had to go the back way to intercept Judah, knowing he would pass through. So Judah and his brothers used clothing to deceive their father about Joseph's death. Remember that? They took his coat of many colors. What did they do with it? 
They dipped it in blood, and they deceived their father. Now Tamar takes clothing and deceives Judah. Judah's the one that deceived dad with clothing. Now Judah's going to be the one that's deceived by clothing. The Bible says you reap what you sow. This is exactly what happened. And now look at this. Tamar is using clothing to deceive Judah. For she saw, again on the physical, she could, and this word saw is a different word. She kind of put two and two together that Sheila was grown up and had not been given to her in marriage. So how did she know this plan would work? How did she know that, hey, all I have to do is pose as a prostitute and Judah will come unto me and that's how I'll conceive? She knew that Judah was a sketchy guy to begin with. Let me ask you a question. The people closest to you, in this case it's his daughter-in-law, do they think you're that susceptible? Hey, all I need to know to trick Gary is to do this. All I need to know and put your name in there to trip them up is to do this. Is your weakness that obvious? She knew that Judah was a, a jerk. She knew that Judah was treated women badly. She was one of the victims of it. And she knew Judah well, knew Judah better than he knew himself, and she knew that this plan would work. So when Judah saw her, and again, this is the word based on outward appearance, he lusted after her. He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. She put the veil on, ready for a honeymoon without a husband. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Hey, come, let me come into you. Play on words here, and especially more in Hebrew. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. I don't think he was paying close attention. Seriously, if you had seen any woman in this church with a veil on, would that have kept you from knowing who it was? But he's so blinded by his lust, he's not seeing straight at all. She said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he says, well, I'll give you a young goat. This isn't going to cost him anything. This guy's rich. He's got flocks. He's going to give her one young goat, which to a prostitute might be everything if you're exceptionally poor. But for this guy... It was nothing. Again, more disrespect for women. Women are not sex objects. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, well, what pledge should I give you? In other words, put down a down payment, put down some security. And she said, now watch this, give me your signet. What's your signet? We get the word signature from signet. Remember, in those cultures, you wore a ring which had your family uh, seal on it. And whenever you'd enter into a contract with someone, you'd stamp it with the ring in the wax. She's saying, basically, give me that signet. And then the cord, you'd use a fancy cord and put that ring on here. So you didn't necessarily always wear it, especially if you were working. So you could take that off and stamp it and put it back on. Unless you were king and you didn't work with your hands, then you could keep it on. Okay? And then your staff. What is his occupation? He's a shepherd. What does shepherds do with their staff? They work with it. So do you realize what she's asking for? If, if she was doing it today, she says, I want your social security card, I want your driver's license, and I want your credit card. He's given away everything for some minutes of pleasure. Is this guy thinking straight at all? No. And we don't. We don't think straight when sex is involved. We don't, we, that's why we have to stay out of these situations. But he puts himself right in this situation. So who else laid down their staff to take it up again? Anybody remember? Moses, yes. But Moses did it for a good reason. God said, what's in your hand? He said, the staff. He said, lay it down. But then he, God turned into a snake and he drew it back up again. And this was showing that my work can be used for good purposes, for the glory of God. Judah saying, my work will be used to gratify me. Quite, quite the opposite here. 
So he gave them to her, <laughs> Social Security, driver's license, credit card, okay? And he went and leaving it with her, okay? I mean, all kinds of unscrupulous things she could have done with that. She could have went around town and said, hey, Judah told me to sell 50 acres over here for $50,000. Oh, really? Him? No, what? She gave me a signet, and she could have stamped it right there. Boom. It would have been irreversible. She could have totally abused him in this situation. And so she, he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil, and she put on her garment. She went back to grieving for her husband. Proverbs 7, 7 says, and I have seen among, this is a long passage, but men and women, this is worth reading. I've seen among the simple, people who are foolish, right, don't know better. I have perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, talk about the corner of a prostitute or a loose woman, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, which is it? She's available all the time. Twilight, late at night, the dark of night. Okay, and behold, the, women, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. It doesn't necessarily say she is a prostitute, she's, but she's dressed in a way that says she's available. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the streets, now in the market, now at every corner she lies in wait. In other words, sexual temptation is everywhere at all times, is what Solomon's trying to say. She seizes him and she kisses him with bold face. She says to him, notice how forward she is. I had to offer sacrifices. She's, all of a sudden, she's religious. And today, I paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you and to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. She's like, oh, you're awesome. You're wonderful. You're the man I've been looking for. That's only like the fifth guy she said it to that day. But guys, be careful that your insecurities don't make you vulnerable to someone's charming speech. Women, same way. Don't let some guy sweet talk you just to take advantage of you. This guy, she's saying, oh, yeah, you're awesome. You're everything. She's only said that to several people already. She said, I've spread out my couch with coverings, colored my linen with Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Okay, she's making it all sound like a romantic evening. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. So she's wanting to commit adultery. He took a bag of money with him. She's, she's trying to reassure him. He's not coming back for a long time. At full moon, he'll come home. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. And this works both ways. Men and women have that power of each other. I think men are more susceptible because we don't think as straight as we should. Women are more wise on these issues, or maybe used to be. Uh, and it says, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast. That's why they call them stag parties. Till an arrow pierces its liver. I don't know for sure. I'm just going with that. Okay. As a, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And this word life here doesn't mean necessarily he, his heart stops beating. It means his livelihood, everything he knew that was good about his life is on the line. We all know horror stories of men and women who just for a night of passion lost their marriage, their children, and in some cases, their jobs and their reputation. Is it worth it? Solomon goes on to say, Now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray to her paths. You see, don't even go into that part of town. Don't go anywhere near that situation. 
That's where Judah found himself. He's going and he's hanging out with ungodly people in an ungodly town. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Tamar is trying to do the right thing, but she's doing it in the wrong way. Yes, she should conceive a child, or raise a son that could take care of her. Yes, it's Judah's obligation to make that happen somehow, some way. Again, that may seem weird to the, our culture. That was their culture then. Uh, but she's going about doing this all the wrong way. So now we see the unbelievable hypocrisy. This is off the charts. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite, he's not man enough to go take care of this himself. He's going to send his pagan friend to take back the pledge from the woman. He didn't find her. Wow, big surprise here. Trusting an unfaithful man, according to Solomon, is like a trouble, uh, in a time of trouble, is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Have you ever asked someone to do something for you that was really important and they're not a reliable person? Then you had to go fix it and go do it all yourself. Okay, many of you know that, that thing. Why is he sending this guy? Again, he's not man enough to do it himself. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they're like, nobody's been here like that. And then they're probably thinking, why are you looking for a prostitute? Oh, it's not for me, it's for a friend. What? You're looking for a prostitute? For... Anyway, it's complicated. So it just really looks really bad, really sketchy. And Judah replied, let her keep the things. And we... Because if we keep going around looking for her, they're going to laugh at us. Like, why do you keep looking for prostitutes around here, guys? What's your problem? Okay? And we don't want to be laughed at. Oh, thanks, Judah. Thanks that you don't want to be laughed at. You see, I sent this. They say, you see, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. So we tried. Basically, Judah said, hey, we tried. If anybody says anything, well, why didn't you do it? They say, well, we tried our best to find her. So about three months, first trimester, later Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Some translation says it's played the harlot. And moreover, she is pregnant by this, or this harlotry, this immorality. And look at Judah's response. Judah's guilty of the same thing and worse, right? Bring her out. Like forcibly bring her out here. Let her be burned. <laughs> what? Burned? What was the, the customary way in many cultures? Stoning? No, no, no. We're, bur we're burning this chick. Really, Judah? You're, you're that harsh on it? Notice there's no, like, wait a minute, she's my daughter-in-law. Let's hear her side of the story. Certainly there's got to be some reason. Maybe she was raped. Maybe this isn't her fault. No, no, let's bring out this burner. Hypocrites are very harsh. Hypocrites want to be hard on others, but not on their own sin. Oh, well, I have reasons for mine. I'm just under a lot of pressure. But why are you doing that? Oh, yeah, you, you call yourself a Christian. Well, I had reasons for mine. It was a moment of weakness. But, man, look at you. You guys are horrible. Hypocrites are the harshest on people about these things. And this, is, this guy has no compassion whatsoever. Fast forward to the New Testament. A woman taken in adultery is brought to Jesus. Does he say burner? No. Even when they say stoner, what is his response? Well, hey, okay. Whoever in this room here is without sin, you go ahead, you cast the first stone. That took guts on Jesus' part because he knew nobody was going to throw any stones. But notice the contrast between Judah and Jesus in the way someone who's caught in adultery. So as she's being brought out, again, visualize physically being dragged out. She's sent word to her father-in-law. So, hey, hey, hold, stop here. Give this to Judah. Give this to Judah. So somebody runs on ahead and gives this to Judah as they're dragging her out. And she says, hey, tell Judah by the man 
to whom these belong, that's who got me pregnant. Then Judah sees them, identifies them. And let's give him credit. He could say, oh, this is not mine. But I think many of his friends would say, Judah, that's obviously yours. I mean, look at the picture on the driver's license. That's you, Judah, okay? And he's broken down. He's like, you know what? She's the bigger person in this situation. I'm the guilty one. Since I didn't give her my son, Shalom. I, I, I told her I would. I didn't keep my promise. And then it says, and he did not know her again. And I don't know exactly how this works. I don't know if because he got her pregnant that, that he would then have to be forced to marry her. I don't know how that culture worked. The Bible's not condoning of that. But it makes that comment there that he could have maybe, but he chose not to because he felt bad about the situation. Now, whether, whether Judah changed his heart, we don't know. We do see he changed his heart some when he found Joseph, but that's for another time. So all this started because of an unequally yoked friendship and unequally yoked marriage. It produced unrighteous husbands who abused and mistreated women. It caused that woman to go for undercover revenge. Again, wasn't right, but that's what she felt she had to do. And then it led to unbelievable hypocrisy on Judah's part. And that leads us to the last part, a really unusual childbirth. So she has twins. Sound familiar? What set of twins did we know previously? Jacob and Esau, God has a sense of humor. It's like, hey, I'm going to keep thinking, making things complicated. You think it's the firstborn here, but I'm going to switch it around on you and make it the firstborn over here. And, and so these babies are wrestling in the womb again. Sounds familiar. And one sticks his hand out, and, the, and the, 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 the midwife who's helping with the childbirth ties a scarlet thread on it. Okay? Scarlet thread. Where do you see that in the Bible? Remember Rahab the harlot? And Jericho, and she let down a red cord so that they would destroy everything but that family because they had repented. And then, of course, you trace that scarlet thread all throughout the Bible, and it leads to the cross of Christ. In the tabernacle, there were scarlet threads from the temple showing where the salvation was on the other side. Beautiful picture here. Anyway, the hand comes out. They tie a red cord around the wrist. Hand, brother's like, no, not so fast. Pulls him back in. I don't know how he came back in, but there, there's this breach going on here. But as he drew back in, behold, his brother came out and like came out completely. And, it, and this, they, in the Hebrew here, it's a beautiful play on words. What a breach. And a breach birth is like upside down and what a twist of events and what an opening. What an opportunity you've made for yourself. Look at that. You were about, you were thinking to be the firstborn and now this one came out. And so it's play on words here. It says, and therefore his name was Perez. And because of that, we have great Mexican food today. I'm totally kidding. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. So they thought if part of the baby came out, that's the firstborn. And God's like, no, it doesn't work that way. It's the one that comes out completely. So you're going to call this one the firstborn, but I'm telling you, no, over here, this one's the firstborn. Just like God switched Jacob and Esau. So the secondborn son, Zerah, which they considered the first, had the red thread on his wrist. But the firstborn son, Perez, which they considered second, would be the one where the messianic line would come. So again, man has it wrong. So we're wrapping this up here. The way man thinks of doing things is totally backwards. God says through Isaiah, my thoughts, my way of thinking are not your thoughts. Neither is my way of doing things the way you do them, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, and the heavens here doesn't mean the clouds, it means the galaxies. Think about how far the galaxies are above planet earth. That's how much higher God's way of thinking is than ours. 
You tried to explain the internet to your dog. Good luck with that. You not only have a language barrier, you have an intellect barrier, okay? And God's saying, that's just a small picture of how much higher my way of doing things is higher than yours. People think they've got it all figured out. God repeatedly chooses the younger sibling, the widow, the weak, the orphan, the poor, the underdog, the foreigner, on and on and on, to prove that he's in control and not us. It's interesting, in elections, it's statistically proven that the taller candidate is more likely to win. Remember many, George H. Bush, when he was in a debate with Michael Dukakis, Michael Dukakis had a box hidden behind the podium to stand on so he didn't look shorter than George H. Bush. Because statistically speaking, shorter candidates lose. Since when does being taller make you a better leader? I mean, you guys fell for it. I'm 6'2", and you chose me as your pastor. And you, you guys obviously... No, I'm just kidding. There's different ways of looking at it, but people always have things backwards. People think about salvation. Hey, if I'm a good way, person, I'll go to heaven. And God goes, no. Because number one, none of you are, all, are good. And number two, if possible, you can never be good enough. And so God chooses the sinners to be saved. And then the righteous, people who think they're righteous are the ones that are not. Jesus came, says it's a sick who need a doctor. Jesus also said in Matthew 20, the last shall be first. The first shall be last. In our corporate culture, it's step on others, climb the ladder, push people out of the way, lie, cheat to steal, whatever you got to do, make your way to the top. And Jesus says, you want to be at the top in my kingdom? Wash people's feet. Go change some diapers. Go help the poor. Hang out with the lowly, and I'll exalt you. God's ways of doing things are totally different. You see, sin is man taking the place of God. Who's supposed to be in control? God is. But we say, no, no, I'm, it's my life. I will do what I want. I'll go to college where I want. I'll marry who I want. I'll do what I want. It's my money. I'll spend it the way I want. And that's the very definition of sin. You're taking the place of God. But sacrifice is God taking the place of man. Jesus Christ, who did nothing wrong, came down and took your place on the cross. You see, when Paul was talking about salvation, he said repentance, what it requires is repentance towards God. God, I, I give up. I'm no longer in control of my life. I give it to you. I, if I keep my life, I will continue to make a mess of it. So I, I, repentance is a, a military word for about face. I'm going my own way. I go on about face. I turn towards God and I put my faith in what Christ did on the cross. I give my life to you, God the Father. You be in control. I accept Christ's forgiveness on the cross for my sins, and then I am, therefore I am saved. Romans says it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you make him in control of your life, and you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, that Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins, and all of us can think about it, that. We know the guilt of it, right? We all have our list, this guy included. But if I believe that Jesus took all the horrible things I did and he put them on that, his son Jesus Christ and Jesus took all that and I believe that God raised him from the dead, what does the Bible say? That we are saved. Let me ask you, do you know Christ is your Savior? Have you waved the white flag and said, I give up? I give control to you. You see, Genesis chapter 38 is all about people trying to take control of their life and God says, you know what? Y'all are just messing it up but I'm still in control. I'll choose which baby goes which direction, and I'm going to bring you a Messiah. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, these stories are hard to read. They're, they're hard to talk about. But sin is hard. I thank you, Father, that Christ suffered in a very hard way for us. He took all of that bitterness, all that strife, all that pain, all the agony, all the sorrow, and he put it upon his own shoulders because he loved us. So, Father, if there's someone here today that's never put their faith in Christ, they've never given up control and given it all to you and received the forgiveness through Christ's cross, I pray they do that right here, right now. You could pray a prayer something like this, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I turn, I repent from that, I turn towards God, I give control to him, and I accept you as my Lord and Savior right here, right now. I believe you died for me. I believe you were buried, and on the third day you rose again just like you said you would, and that you're alive today. Amen. If you made that decision, I'd love to hear from you. This is my cell phone number. Call me, text me. I'll, if you have still questions, like, Gary, I'm just not there yet. I still have questions. Let's talk about it. I'd love to, to talk to you more about Jesus. All right, we're going to do a question and answer session right now. So text your questions in if you can, um, or you can raise your hand if you like. None of the ladies that normally help me are here right now. Um, I'll just do this here. Pull out my phone. All right, so looks like we have a question already. Okay, so go ahead and text those in. How do you decide when it's time to cut ties with someone? And if, it's that, and if that's what you decide to, to do, how do you go about it? Well, you don't text them. <laughs> you, you don't ghost them. I, I, I can't believe there's still adults today that just won't answer your calls and won't text you back. And it's just like, it, it's crazy in our culture that, that that's acceptable. Um, uh, let me think. I want to give you an answer based on God's wisdom here. So how do you decide? Um, in a relationship, it's like skiing. Once you get off the ski lift and you start going forward, it's going to go really fast after that, okay? Our bodies, our minds, our hearts are designed to attach really fast, and that's why we, it's, the temptation to have sex before marriage is very real because we're meant to come together really fast. That's why I'm for short engagements because otherwise you're going to either fail or you're going to get frustrated. Um, so one is to put some space between you because my thinking is when in doubt, don't. If you're not sure, if, you, if it's not super abundantly clear that this is God's person for you, then you need to call it off. You can always go back later if you're wrong, but put the brakes on, have a cooling off time period. Um, someone recently shared with me like some research that says that when you get emotionally involved with someone romantically, for the first four months, your brain is like shut off. Like you see no flaws. They're like perfect. That's why an engagement should be more than four months because after about four or five months, it's like, oh, okay, you're not perfect after all, <laughs> you know? So we need to, and, and if, again, if you're intimately involved, then it's really hard to, to get out of it. So that's why you don't. But you might have to have a friend get involved and say, hey, let's sit down and talk about this and say, you know, I don't think this is going the right direction. And so let's put brakes on this. And therefore, think about this. Our, bo our bodies are designed to be addicted. And that's a good thing because there are good addictions, okay? Your body craves food. That's a good addiction. Your body craves your husband or your wife. That's a good addiction. But there are also bad addictions, okay? So when you break up with anyone, I'm sure almost everybody in this room has gone through this. You break up. 
A few days later, I go, oh, but I just want to talk to them. I just want to call them and see if they're okay. I just want to text them. I wonder if they're thinking about me. Don't. You got to go cold turkey. You have to go cold turkey. No contact, nothing for a long time until that four months can wear off. You're like, okay. Because many people in this room, again, me included, you've been in a relationship with someone and it was the wrong thing and you broke it off and it took a long time to get over it. When you did, you're finally like, phew, I am so glad to be out of, that, out of their life and have them out of mine. Um, anyway, I hope that helps, but follow God's guidance. Um, so here's another question. What if you have a friend who is a Christian that constantly borrows money and nevertheless pays you back and not everyone you cut ties with is a romantic partner? Okay, um, then the first word that comes to my mind is enabling. You have money of your relatives. That seems to be a relative problem. It can be a friend problem. People who borrow money. And when you help them and it doesn't make life any better, it makes it worse and they come back for more, don't be the enabler, okay? Um, the reason the prodigal son came home is because he ran out of money. Think about that. The father never stepped in and said, hey, here's four more thousand. Here's a few more thousand. It was done. No friends helped him. Nobody helped him. He was, he was eating the slop that was fed to the pigs. People have to hit rock bottom. Otherwise, you know what? It's not his fault because he won't give me any more money. And it's not my parents' fault because they didn't do this. It's my fault. I'm the one that's face down in the pig trough. And that's when people own up to it. So when you keep feeding them more money, you're, just, you're keeping them from hitting rock bottom. And a lot of parents and grandparents do this for their kids, enable them, enable them, enable them. And they think it's love because they don't know how to give them true love. So give them true love, which is speak the truth in love. So you know what? You're unemployed because you keep not showing up for work and I'm not stepping in to pay it. You need to sleep in your car. Seriously. I get phone calls all the time from people who say, hey, I'm on the streets right now. Can you pay for a hotel? And I'm like, you have a car? And I'm like, yeah. And I said, I've slept in my car when I was single. I'll give you some groceries. I can give you some medical attention, whatever, but I'm not paying for a hotel. Okay? I'm just not because you need to feel the pain of being whatever you did to lose your situation. Now, again, there's exceptions to that. I recognize that. All right, let me see what other questions we have. Um, in the Bible, Jesus says, if you... My mic's still on? Okay. In the Bible, Jesus says, if you had the faith, you too could move mountains and calm the sea. Is this true? Jesus did say you could move mountains. I don't see where it says Jesus said you could calm the sea. It says you speak to the mountain, and the mountain would be cast into the sea. But anyway... In the Jewish culture, a mountain was anything you were up against. The biggest problem in your life was a mountain, okay? And so Jesus, nobody in the history of the world has ever physically moved a mountain. So that doesn't mean Jesus is lying. He's saying you can move the biggest obstacles in your life with prayer and with faith. So that's what Jesus meant by that. Um, okay. All right. That's all the text questions. Anybody have one here? Raise a hand. All right, cool. Let's stand. And again, for the, the, several of you who are first-time guests, we're very glad that you're here. Take some time to hang out and greet our guests.